Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Jeffrey Brown. Jeffrey is the CEO of Brown's Superstores, which manages and operates 13 supermarkets in the Philadelphia area. Brown's supermarkets are mostly located in underserved communities, often in food deserts where residents don't have access to healthy foods. Brown's Superstores put the supermarket at the center of the community. They have created over 3,000 jobs And as part of a community-driven initiative, 700 of their employees are formerly incarcerated. Jeffrey is a fourth-generation grocery store owner. Welcome, Jeffrey. We're glad to have you today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. So let's dive in. You founded Brown Superstores 30 years ago as a grocery business, and social impact may not have been the first intention of, of the company, but now it's grown into really what looks like a social business. Can you talk a little bit about how you started the company and what your original intentions were and perhaps how they've changed over time? So um, I'm, I'm from a, a, a number of generations of grocers, and I grew up in the grocery business. And as a young boy, if I wanted to spend time with my dad, he would take me to the grocery store on the weekends. And and uh, my dad my dad had a a smaller grocery business that, that was, at least it started in inner city communities. And when I went to college, um, I actually, uh, at Babson, I wrote a business plan on a social grocery business because that's kind of what I saw in, in a maybe not fully organized way in my dad's business. And when I graduated college, um, after being a CFO for a couple of years, I ventured out on my own and started my own grocery business at that was not a social business. The, the ideas were floating around in my mind, but I was a little afraid um, to jump right in. And uh, one day I went to a, a meeting um, at United Way where they were talking about the problem of food deserts and how you could predict someone's life expectancy based on whether their uh, census tract had access to healthy and affordable food. And the delta one or two miles apart could be 15, 20 years on someone's life expectancy less if they didn't have access to healthy and affordable food. Really? And uh, yeah, and, and um, it seemed to me that that was something that I could solve. It certainly intrigued me. And um, uh, I had worked with the, the, uh, some legislators that I met there, and we had a couple uh, innovative ideas, and one's Pennsylvania Fresh Food Financing Initiative, which was a public-private partnership to, to finance grocery stores and food deserts. And, and then I took my first shot. And at this now, it's about 15 years ago at opening, you know, a food desert location um, that had become successful. And so we, we figured out a way, you know, to do this. And each at that, um, uh, we got a little better at it. That's fascinating. Um, Tell us a little bit, you you kind of mentioned some statistics around what the impact of living in a food desert is. Can you tell us what your typical typical customer looks like? 
So um, uh, my customers um, tend to be very diverse, tend to be very low income. Um, Philadelphia is the most impoverished big city in the country, and my supermarkets are where the, uh, the impoverished people live. And they tend um, not to have access to healthy and affordable food, among many other things. And uh, although, um, although they're low income, um, you know, there's a range of incomes. And, and uh, even in the lowest income area, most people still work. And so um, pe- pe- people that are good customers get swept up in statistics and perceptions and end up without a place to spend their money. Um, and so... You know, we built our business based on learning about our customers, learning about their heritage, their origin, their religion, their preferences, and sort of building a customized store to serve uh, that community. Can you give us an example of that customization? Oh, I give you a, a bunch of uh, cool examples. One is um, our very first location had a heavy, um, a heavy percentage of the population were African-American Muslims. And so uh, when you're a Muslim, uh, you have dietary restrictions called halal, somewhat similar to how Jewish people have kosher. And nobody in that neighborhood uh, sold halal. And so one of our innovations were to work with the imams in the community and develop a, a, halal, a halal program. So we carry those products. But in a different section of the neighborhood, we have a lot of um, immigrants from uh, Western African countries. Uh, which have a completely different diet than almost anybody else. And so uh, culture by culture, we would befriend them, learn about, you know, their origins, their diet, and the reasons why the diet is what it is and what they celebrate and uh, just everything that we could, immersing ourselves in their culture and then coming up with a customized solution to serve them. And uh, what we found... uh, Besides, like any good business should do this, but I guess what's um, unique about it is we're doing it for the very poorest people in the country, but we're finding that it's an incredibly good business proposition to sell people what they want and need and to solve problems for them. And we're finding it's not only good socially, but it's really good uh, for the success of your business because as we learn more and more about the people we serve, we're able to increase revenues per square foot quite dramatically and uh, we, we would buy uh, a closed-up supermarket, and we've done this again and again, and often do 400% more revenues than our predecessor. And so obviously uh, that gives you a lot of room to make an impact on the community and to, and to be a financial success. I think your examples really show the power of listening, and I know that your leadership style is very community-oriented, um, at Beyond Capital, we've we've also observed in the markets in which we invest, which are developing countries, that often people think that you know there there is nothing you can do, uh, you know, and people who are living under the poverty line don't have a budget when in fact they have a budget for healthcare and food and and energy, and it's just a matter of providing them with the right services. So that's. Ex- very, very inspiring to hear. Uh, on the same token, uh, you take cues from higher-end stores like Whole Foods when designing your supermarkets. Uh, how does that play into the strategy and, and perhaps success of, of Brown Superstores? So I think what we tried to do is, is not think of ourselves as, as grocers to the poor because um, it, it would tend to limit your 
your, uh, the way you would look at the needs of your consumers. So um, it, it, the way we looked at it is there are people we want to serve, and they don't have a lot of people serving them. And besides their necessities, which we all need, um, they do spend money and time on non-necessities. They, they, they try to enjoy their lives like all of us do. And they have different incomes. Just because they're in a census tract that has a, a very low income, there's a bell curve of different incomes. And so some of those people have more uh, discretionary income, or sometimes, sometimes they have more and sometimes they have less. And so sometimes they want to do fun things. And so uh, what we tried to look at is a potpourri of the challenges they have. And uh, we have dived into uh, uh, solutions for financial services, for um, uh, for enjoying a night out with your friends, for um, um, uh, how you celebrate things in life, uh, what is the ritual and what kind of things do you need to, to celebrate your life based on your heritage. And uh, we have really developed uh, a surprising amount of what you would consider higher-end products and services and healthcare. Some of our stores have federally qualified healthcare centers. And at the root, root of these innovations is sort of understanding what is the customer trying to accomplish that they can't, and what could we bring to bear as far as business model innovations and open-mindedness to try to help them um, do what it is they want to do with their family. And uh, when, when, when we uh, introduce these ideas, it's rarely a problem having customers that want, want to utilize it. Generally, they're very busy. The, the challenge is how do we piece together a business model that can meet both their, both their price objective and the service they want? And that's where sort of the rubber meets the road. Like the good intention by itself isn't all that useful. I mean, we wouldn't do it if we didn't care. We People that are do social things care. But the real action is when you can figure out how, how the math and the business model um, you know, to make something happen at a price or in a way that works for, you know, somewhat more financially challenged communities. And what are, well, maybe the most uh, poignant example of your mind in a business model, of course, that's not completely uh, something that would reveal uh, company intellectual property, but I'm just curious if there's an example of, of one of those models that is, you know, especially innovative or one that you're especially proud of. Yeah, there's, there's two that I think are really cool. Um, and, and I would learn about uh, unmet needs through community meetings. And we, we have a ritual of uh, community meetings where it's like a town hall meeting and I'd go in front of a crowd. You know, we'd announce, no advertising, we'd announce that I'm interested in talking to the community. And over the years, the crowds got bigger and bigger. And I would just, as the CEO, stand in front of the crowd and ask them what's going on in their lives and, and what kind of problems, you know, should somebody think about solving? And, and you know, some of the uh, reoccurring points were, were one was about health care, the lack of access to health care. And so uh, after a couple failed attempts, because we tried to do this um, in a traditional way with sort of like a modern quick clinic, and the for-profit part of health care do- really doesn't have a way to economically serve underprivileged communities. But we stumbled uh, upon federally qualified healthcare centers, which is um, which is a special kind of healthcare designed to serve less affluent communities that has a sliding scale fee and a mechanism to make a sliding scale fee work. 
uh, making it financially viable. And we, we have two uh, FQHCs in our stores today, and they're very busy. Um, and, and, of course, I'm not a healthcare person, so we had a partner with, with someone who had this designation that, that could run a, a health clinic like this. And now uh, uh, my customers would take one bus to get left off right in front of our store, and with their shopping and their pharmacy and a whole bunch of other services, they can get their well visits. If their kid's sick, they can get them seen and, and get their prescriptions filled. And so uh, it was a marvelous success in which nobody loses money because the business model matches the circumstances. And I think the second one is uh, we we in this in, we have some suburban stores as well that are they're middle income and, and they have bank branches in, in those stores. And bank branches, you know, don't didn't do too well in our urban stores. But we stumbled upon the credit union model, and uh, we started opening up uh, credit unions uh, with some innovations to bring down the cost of uh, operating a credit union. And we have uh, credit unions in most of our urban stores today that allow my customers to have an account, even if they don't have a balance. So when they have a check, they have a place to cash the check. Or if they happen to have money at a point in time and they want to consider an investment or if they want to buy their first house, there's a non-predatory uh, financial service option um, available to them. And I think there are two very interesting uh, examples of the business model driving a solution that otherwise didn't exist in society. You're, for us, you're painting a picture of not only your business, but what the lives of your customers look like. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if there are any unintended consequences of opening a store in an underserved community. Yeah, I, I, in all fairness, uh, there always are unintended consequences. And um, so, uh, if there are things that move society backwards, you'll read about them on the front page of the paper. Um, and, and I would say the unintended consequences for what I've done is it really has hit the, the alternatives to my services. So it's like the small bodegas, um, uh, the, the payday lenders and the check cashing stores tend to get a, you know, really wiped out when I open a big new store uh, in a community. And, um, what, what's interesting is in most places in the country, that would probably be somewhat celebrated. But it was interesting. Um, we have a nonprofit that helps uh, governments do what I do in their communities. And uh, we, we, we learned something that we didn't expect in New York. In the city of New York, um, the view of these small stores is quite a bit different than in other places that I've seen. And so they didn't want to lose the bodegas. That like in Philadelphia, they celebrated it, but in New York, they were concerned about it. And um, uh, to make get some traction to help people do stores in New York, we had to modify the plan to be less um, less uh, dangerous to the smaller stores. So, I mean, the, the culture of, of the community definitely impacts what you do, and you have to think about it. Because you have to understand any intervention has um, impacts on how they did business today. And the question is, is it important to make sure that you don't hurt some people and maybe you want to sort of um, be the impetus to eliminate sort of what, what is not a positive way to help people? That's super interesting. You know, Jeffrey, I have a question around holidays. So 
just comes to my mind, you know, when I go to the grocery store, there's the seasonal aisle and everybody knows what's in there around Halloween time or um, Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter. And I'm just wondering with your diverse customer base, do you maintain the same sort of standard holiday aisle? Do you have something that's more diverse or do you kind of avoid it altogether? I'm just curious how your stores think about holidays with such a diverse and passionate customer base. Yeah, so uh, it really asks a bigger question um, about leadership and how do you lead an organization um, that has customers that, that uh, almost certainly have different values, different religions, different, different ways to celebrate, and how can you tell what's right and wrong? Because I think in leading an organization like mine, um, that really needs to be thought about because if it's homogeneous, it's easy because you just do what people do. And in our case, there's a lot of questions. And basically, uh, my fundamental principle is we don't judge our customers, their religions, their race. We don't judge any of that. There's no good or bad. We're here to serve people. And whether, whether you think they're good or bad, we're going to be sort of religious about our service of all the people that live in the communities that we serve. And so, um, you know, we celebrate Kwanzaa. We, we celebrate the Id Festival for our Muslim customers and all, and all the other holidays that we learn about. And, you know, sometimes uh, customers come in and complain and they say that, that I find it offensive that you celebrated a Muslim holiday. I'm Christian and I find that offensive. And what we have to explain to them is in a place like this where there's a lot of different people, there's, you have to like, from a moral standpoint, set your standards. And our is we don't, our standard is we don't judge people. We serve everybody. As long as it's not harmful or hurting anyone, we serve everybody. We're like, we're not going to sell them guns. We don't sell cigarettes, but celebrate someone's holiday. We don't judge whether that's a good holiday to celebrate or not. And if they need stuff for that holiday, we're going to serve it. And that's the only value that will guarantee you'll always get what you need. Because one day you may be in the minority and you may not be able to get what you need. The only way to guarantee you always get what you need is to have this philosophy. And so I know it makes you feel uncomfortable, but if we're going to get to a place where we all live together successfully, you know, in peace, um, th this has to be the only way to look at it. And uh, m most people, when I explain it to them, th they think about it and, and uh, they, they, they sort of accept it. And if I'm missing something for your holiday, we're happy to work on it. And, uh, you know, we've had to do some of that, um, where one religion felt I was favoring another religion and they, whatever, explained to me why they felt that way. And we tried to accommodate everybody's requests. That's awesome. Thank you for that. And, and challenging. Yeah. Because it, it is challenging, uh, I have to admit. But I think if you, if you look at the world today, where uh, many things are separating us, and I think you have to go down the, the route of what would make a really well, um, uh, a really well, functioning society and well you just can't say that anyone that lives here can't eat that just that can't be right i was just and i don't think we could yeah <laughs> well i was just thinking about the um operational and training aspects of of that which um is you know the other side of the coin right so it's like if somebody comes into a store and complains about that that's a very emotional very heated issue 
Um, do you train your store managers to deal with that? Or is there like sort of an escalation path? Um, you know, I, I'm just curious. Both. Yeah. Um, so training is really important because uh, our mission, which is to bring joy to the lives of the people we serve, and we have a mechanical system to do that, um, is a lot different than most people who do what I do. And so when we hire people, um, it, it, it's incredibly confusing at first. It's different than anything, if they have any work experience in the food business, we operate a lot differently and it's very confusing. And so we spend quite a bit of time up front um, explaining our mission, why we do what we do, what we're trying to accomplish, the profit part, you know, the business part and the social part. And, and this is us. Like, that's not up for negotiation. So if you're uncomfortable in any way with it, you went to the wrong place to work because we're not changing this part of our business. Like, we're always looking for ideas, but the social part isn't, isn't flexible. We're going to do this. I mean, we're going to run spotlessly clean stores in neighborhoods that are the opposite of that. And if it doesn't make sense to you, you're just not in the right place. And what's interesting is um, very, very highly educated people, people with lots of work experience, are much more confused than new people. New people come in and said, this is what we always needed in our neighborhood, and people that are highly trained are confused. And so interestingly enough, we need to spend more time with the highly trained people to explain, you know, why we're different and what we do and why we do it and how it works to our experience from the returning citizens to many, many other aspects of what we do are quite a bit different. Well, one other and so, yes, training, training is very important and understanding that someone's a bad fit or a good fit. That's very important because... If they fundamentally disagree with us, there's not much you could do with them. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about too, and now this is completely, it's still nevertheless on the tip of my tongue. Um, you know, you're in these neighborhoods that are lower income, um, and there are lots of customers there who who want to and have the resources to buy from you. Um, do you have? You know, what is your approach to sort of security and safety and sort of, you know, integrating the rest of the community who may not be participating in that level? I'm, I'm just curious if you could shed any light on that. So first let me say, um, and I operate Suburban and, and uh, these food desert stores, and um, in my opinion, society has exaggerated um, the, the challenge of, of – of, uh, security in these neighborhoods. Um, I'm not saying there isn't challenges, but it's not overwhelmingly challenging as, as it's portrayed often in the media. But um, the first thing it starts out with is a good relationship. So we start out with community leaders and we have a community coordinator in every store. And if there's a problem, we address the problem. If we offended someone, we try to understand why we offended them and we correct our behavior as, as we go. Um, and we keep this ongoing relationship and we have a budget uh, for every store for community relations and we donate and participate and volunteer for community projects and we're part of the community. And that is a huge loss prevention strategy because if you're going to do something inappropriate, you wouldn't want to do it with your friend, someone you count on, or you'd want to do it a lot less. You'd be more hesitant. And we found that uh, when we compare our results to others, that step really does make a big difference. It's like the 
being a human and not a number really makes a big difference to people and being with them. Not that you could do everything they want, but being with them. If they want to meet about an important topic, we're going to meet. We have, we have a community room in most of our urban stores. So you can meet in our store. It doesn't cost anything. We don't charge for that. We'll cater it because we want to work together to make the community better. The second thing is, um, and this is very much the idea of cap, uh, conscious capitalism, um, it's how to uh, use technology and better and best practice techniques with compassion and with you don't want to offend anybody. And if I can give you an example, uh, m- many urban operators would have car corrals. You can't take the carts out to people's cars. And of course, if you bought a lot of groceries for the month, it's really difficult not to be able to bring the cart to your car. And so uh, grappling with this problem, and of course, the business side is you lose a lot of shopping carts in an urban market. Um, I want to say they're, they're about $100 a shopping cart, and you might lose fifty dollars or $100,000 a year in shopping carts in an urban market where you lose very little in a, in a suburban market. And so we had invested in technology that if you take the cart off the lot, the wheels lock, and you can't move the cart. And that dramatically reduced the lost carts and still lets people take their groceries to the car. And so uh, we, we do feel a little more pressure on ourselves to be conscious of offending people or making life too difficult to do business and forcing the, the people that, that have cars that go to the suburbs to shop. And the same is sort of with our loss prevention practices. You know, they're, they're good practices done in a very dignified way. Like all our loss prevention personnel are trained in customer service. And we don't expect that anyone gets treated badly, even if we caught you stealing from us. We, we want to have a professional relationship, even in that awkward situation. And a lot of times uh, when we catch someone stealing, the first question on their mind just going to affect their ability to shop in the store in the future because they, they love the store and they don't have a lot of options. And so, you know, the point is, if you made a mistake, you know, we get it, but you can't do that. And if you want to shop here, if we're going to be in this together, you can't, you can't take stuff from us. And so a lot of times we'll, we know who they are and we'll let them back in again and give them another chance. And that's, that's like not how it would work in, in most grocery businesses or retail businesses. But we're weighing the profit side and the, the human side in every decision we make to try to find that right balance of what's an appropriate way for a business to behave because when it's inappropriate, you're going to have a lot more problem with security. I am in awe by how intentional you are as a leader um, and how much potential your business has. Um, one of the statistics that really stands out to me is that according to the USDA, 36.5 million Americans live in low-income areas with limited access to supermarkets, and about 17 million of them travel distances of over 20 miles to get to the nearest store. I know Browns is currently operating 13 supermarkets, um, and you're doing more than just selling food. Tell us a little bit more about your vision for your company. Because my work is so customized and so personal, um, it really is difficult. And I didn't, I'm not just saying that. We've tried. It's difficult to transplant myself into faraway communities and, and get it to work the same way. 
Um, and we have partnerships. We had a partnership in Baltimore. Um, and that, that's not that far away, but far enough away that it hasn't, the same magic hasn't worked. Um, and so we started a nonprofit about 10 years ago, Uplift Solutions. And Uplift, what our idea was to take some experts from our business, put them in the nonprofit, make them available to the world uh, where you could learn from our experiences. I, actually, almost none of our innovations or intellectual property do I protect. I do the opposite. We try to teach people what we've learned um, so they could do it in another area. And so my way to address the problem, you know, was teach people what we learned because I don't think I could be effective doing it on a mass scale. And of course, um, the work got a little more attention during the Obama administration because um, we, we had advised the Obama administration on food access for, for most of the eight years of, the, of their administration. And um, it, fit, it fit in under Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. And so uh, the Obamas, when they were running for election, they stumbled into one of our stores and they were shocked because they hadn't seen anything like it anywhere else in the country. And uh, they started a dialogue with me, which ultimately sort of grew into the Let's Move campaign, which I think w was the right strategy that unfortunately it doesn't appear that we're, we're continuing as a society, but it's the right strategy because the, the problem we have in the healthcare system is obesity, which really relates to food access and exercise. And, and it was really a dignified way to address both of those things. And long term, I think we got to get back on track with both of those things and, and uh, keep on working to, to whittle away at the food desert problem. Yeah, I could, couldn't agree more. Um, you, you are a, a leader who's obviously very passionate about your work. I'd love to know a little bit more about what gets you up in the morning excited to go to work and what some of your personal motivations are. So, um, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm from a multi-generational grocery family and every generation had their own business, but sort of learned that the, the industry. And when I was a little kid, um, my dad would take me to work with him and I'd go just to spend time with him. And he'd leave me with, with the workers in a, in a low-income or, you know, diverse neighborhood. And uh, we, we always maintained an incredibly good relationship. I looked up to them. I was surprised at how hard they worked and, and uh, the quality of people they were versus what you would hear about on the news or what people would say. And um, I, 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 uh, it, it sort of stuck in my mind as something that society is missing that the quality of the people that get judged, uh, you know, inappropriately. And uh, one of the men asked me uh, how much I got paid. Of course, I was like eight years old when I started. So the answer was nothing. You can't even legally pay me. And uh, he, he reached in his pocket and gave me a quarter because he said no one should work for free. So here, you know, my dad was very successful. We didn't need money. He was willing to take money out of his pocket because he didn't think it was fair, even though I was eight years old. Uh, that I didn't get paid anything. And uh, I know it seems or it may seem trivial, but it always stuck in my mind um, the values that, that those workers had and how they treated me. And I still to this day, I see a lot of, you see bad things happen, but you see a lot of surprisingly positive human things happen that, they don't, that the underprivileged people don't get credit for. 
like sometimes if we have a fundraising thing in the store to raise money for homeless people or for people that are hungry, the lower income stores sometimes outraise the higher income stores. And that says something about the, the people and, and their thinking. And uh, it charges me up to be their champion and give them tools to do better. I like that. The second thing is um, I'm a nerdy problem solver. And I like really complex problems that seem intractable. Uh, I like to work on that kind of thing. As opposed to getting frustrated, um, I keep on thinking of different things I've learned in different fields and different sectors of the economy, different places in the world, how people solve different problems. And I mix and match different ideas in my mind to try to come up with a way to solve something that's very difficult. And of course, the work that I do has an endless supply of those kind of challenges. And I, I find myself not as concerned about whether I'm going to make a profit and do it in my for-profit business or if I'm going to do it for the good of society in a nonprofit, or even I have some government appointments and if I'm going to lead the way to do it. It almost doesn't matter to me. It seems like certain problems are begging to be solved because they're just wrong and they don't need to be that way. And uh, I like being at the table and being one of the people that is working away at these problems. Yeah, there is there is a lot of satisfaction in being a, a social entrepreneur and a nerdy problem solver. That really resonates with me because you are making progress with every problem that you solve. Yeah, and, and uh, generally speaking, although it's not always true, there's a lot of rewards in doing good. Absolutely. Um, there's, you know, hun many hundreds of articles, which we didn't ask for, but still where even very critical reporters are saying, this, this work is pretty good. This is really, this is really what we need more of. It's an attaboy or a pat on the back. And if all you did were pursue maximizing profits, a lot of people are questioning, uh, as a human being, do you have the right balance in life? Like, of course, you need to make your business sustainable, but... If you did that with harming lots of people, you know, you get the opposite of that. You get constantly challenged and, and ultimately you end up with legal problems and sleepless nights about bad behavior. And I, I question whether you even made more money doing that at the end of the day. Well, this has been one of the most inspirational conversations I think I've ever had. And if I could... I'll jump through this microphone right now and give you a big hug. <laughs> Thank you. I think this um, is is really um, incredibly valuable and um, maybe one of those nerdy and practical problems you need to solve is how to scale your business a lot bigger than it is right now. You know, the um, there's just uh, so much need for what you do. And, um, you know, I, I hope that you can continue to to do it and, and to expand it as much as you, as much as you can figure out how to, because it's pretty special. Yeah. And I would add Thank that you. there are so many aspiring leaders who could fall and follow in your footsteps, uh, and really learn a lot from your approach. And both Ed and I have been tremendously inspired today. We're, we're ending this with big smiles on our faces and really grateful to have you as a part of the Beyond Th Capital Thank podcast. You. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. I enjoyed our time together, and, and feel free to call upon me uh, as like-minded people that would like to see capitalism, you know, enhanced a little bit.
Thanks Absolutely. so much. Yeah, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.